Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. Following our flagship show, Omerta, Almost sold out at the Olympia Theatre Dublin on April 27th, we're taking to the road with promoter MCD. We'll be in Dolan's of Limerick on May 3rd and in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th and finally Galway, where we will perform at Monroe's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta, the sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those who break it. If Jerry Hutch was ever uneasy at the amount of attention he got during his 13-week-long trial at the Special Criminal Court in Dublin, he never showed it. But then, he's never been one to give too much away, even when giving interviews to the press. For decades, his craggy features have been familiar to those with even just a passing interest in Irish crime. But since the Regency Hotel shootings of February 2016, there are few in the country who don't know who he is. The face is a little more lined and gone is the once close-cropped jet-black hair. Instead, it now curls in silver waves down to the top of his shirt collar. But there's no mistaking the man, who most know better by his nickname, The Monk. By rights, he should have disappeared from the general public's gaze by now. A once notorious criminal figure, he began his nefarious career as a youngster in Dublin's north inner city, breaking into cars and jumping over bank tellers' desks to rob fistfuls of cash. To this day, he is suspected of carrying out two of the biggest bank heists in Irish history. But since being released from jail in 1985, he has consistently insisted that his business was in property and not crime. Whatever way he made a living, the 59-year-old had stepped back and was spending much of his time down in the Canary Islands with his wife Patricia. It was a well-earned retirement of sorts, flying between his home in the plush suburb of Clontarf on Dublin's north side, where he would visit with his four children and their kids, and a holiday home on his beloved Lanzarote. But instead of enjoying relaxing days in the winter sun, he has spent the last couple of years in prison, a place he swore he would never return to, waiting to be tried for the murder of David Byrne. This is the story of Jerry the Monk Hutch from his early days as a young hoodlum 
through to his astonishing acquittal in the special criminal court. How did this quiet-spoken man from the north inner city become one of the most notorious figures in Irish criminal history? How did he end up on trial for murder and why did he walk free? It's a story about blood bonds, bitter feuds and shocking betrayal. It's a story about the changing face of Dublin and about the pursuit of justice in the courts and on the streets. The Monk is a four-part crime world long read produced by Ian Mullaney and read by me, Nicola Talent. This episode uses archive material from RTE. Part 2. Education of a Criminal He first faced the three judges at the Special Criminal Court on Tuesday the 18th of October 2022 when he entered a plea of not guilty. If he was angry or perturbed at finding himself in the dock alongside his two co-accused, Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney, he never showed it. His demeanour throughout the three-month trial was a study of perfect impassiveness and nonchalance. In fact, for much of the time, he seemed almost a little bored. But make no mistake about it, he must be seething behind that calm exterior, not to mention heartbroken. For not only has he been rocketed against his wishes back into the public eye, but a horrific all-out gang war between the Kinahan and Hutch families has cost him his brother Eddie, two of his best friends and several other relatives and associates. He's had plenty of time to ruminate over where things went so drastically wrong for him. Arrested in August 2021 by Spanish police in the seaside town of Fuingarola and extradited back to Ireland, he's been in custody ever since. He had already watched from the sidelines as a world he was once so intimately involved in changed radically. Although always violent, with no room for weakness or mercy, Gangland Ireland morphed into an even more brutal and pitiless realm filled with gun-toting youngsters anxious to make their name and quick to take offence. Of course, the main difference from when Hutch started out to where it is now is the drug trade. It's a business he has repeatedly claimed to have never been involved in, although some Gardaí are not convinced he remained totally clean of that particular market given its reach. It would have been difficult not to have had some dealings with it. Also, there was a lot more money to be made. But even involvement in the old-fashioned kind of crime, mostly robbery, is something Hutch has always insisted he was forced into, a road he had to go down if he hoped to survive. He was simply a victim of his circumstances and got out as soon as he could. So where did the monk come from? What shaped him and how did he become one of our best-known gangland figures? And after living for so many years in comfort and freedom, how did he end up in front of those three judges at the special criminal court? There's certainly no doubt he experienced extreme poverty growing up. The youngest of eight children, his dad Patrick Masherhutch, worked as a docker while his mother Julia looked after the family. For years they lived in the notorious corporation buildings, packed blocks of social housing flats on Corporation Street in Dublin's north inner city. 
For those interested in having a look, the road has since been renamed James Joyce Street, but the flats are no longer there. They were pulled down in the early 1970s. When Hutch was seven years old, his family moved to Summerhill, not far from their original home. By this stage, he was probably already involved in petty crime, a result of there being nothing around when he was a boy. I mean, first up, best dressed, he said during an RTE television interview in 2008. Yeah, I had no choice. You had to get into crime to feed yourself, never mind dress yourself. He was just eight when he made his first appearance at the children's court, where he faced larceny charges. He would later claim his first conviction was for stealing a bottle of red lemonade. By the age of 10, he was a member of the teenage street gang, the Bugsy Malones, named after the hit musical film with kids playing Chicago gangsters. Their speciality was smashing the windows of slow-moving cars to steal handbags and briefcases. Why are you all here at 12 o'clock in the morning? Oughtn't you be at school? No, don't go to school. What about a job? I'm looking for one. That's what? Um, like what? A messenger boy. It's believed he racked up more than 30 convictions as a teenager for burglary, for assault, larceny, car theft, joyriding and malicious damage. Another audacious talent included jumping over bank tellers' desks, grabbing the money from their drawers before racing out the door again. It earned him several stints in industrial schools before landing his first proper jail sentence at the age of 15 when he was sent to Mount Joy. It seems Hutch was never shy of speaking to journalists. His first interview was on RTE Radio when he was just 16, where he explained to the reporter how he just couldn't help himself when it came to petty theft. I can't give up robbing. If I see money in a car, I'm taking it, he brazenly declared. I just can't leave it there. If I see a handbag on a seat, I'll smash the window and be away before anyone knows what's going on. I don't go near people walking down the street. They're not worth robbing. When asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, he giggled. I'd like to be serving behind the bank. Just fill up the bags and jump over the counter. He also spoke to Sunday Independent journalist Veronica Geeran about his troubled youth, not long before she was shot dead in 1996. We were kids then doing jump overs, shoplifting, robberies, burglaries. Anything that was going on, we did it, he explained. That was normal for any inner city kids back then. Going to jail at the age of 15, he claimed, just taught him how to be a better criminal. I'll agree I'd done wrong, but I think the severity of being put into Mountjoy prison at that age, it was like going to college for criminals, he told RTE. It's also thought that he was christened the monk during that first jail stretch, on account of him being so quiet and disciplined. Five years later, he was back in Mountjoy, where he served another two-year sentence for malicious damage. By the time he was released, in 1985, when he was still just 22, he was done with prison and swore never to return. Hutch used some of his time in jail wisely, for instance, teaching himself to read and to write. It's also suspected that on his release, he'd made the decision to turn his attention from petty crime to far more ambitious projects. The risks might have been bigger, but the rewards were enormous. He's been described as methodical, fearless, cunning and ruthless, perfect traits for daring crimes. 
He also claims to have always steered clear of either using or selling drugs. After watching his community and those around it fall prey to the scourge of heroin in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s. He pulled together a small team of loyal and trusted associates, but only one or two were from his teenage crime years and the rest were dismissed as talkers. No longer interested in smash-and-grab-style robberies, he sat down and carefully planned out how the next part of his life was going to go. In an interview for a TV3 documentary in 2008, former head of the Criminal Assets Bureau, Felix McKenna, explained how he believed Hutch adjusted his approach to crime after his release in 1985. He changed his MO at that time, He changed his modus operandi after that and became very secretive, McKenna said. He adopted a complete change of attitude and became one of those masterminds who plan robberies. As the years progressed, his inner circle built up intelligence and timings about when and where large cash deliveries would be made and where vans would be at at particular times. Within two years, they were ready to strike. And on the 25th of January 1987, a Securicor van was robbed at gunpoint near Marino Marsh in Dublin's Fairview. It had been collecting cash from banks across the city throughout the day. And after making yet another collection, it went to move off. But a stolen red BMW pulled up alongside it and three masked men jumped out. They forced the two Securicor employees in the front of the van to get out and they drove it to a patch of nearby wasteland. It's thought they were shocked to find multiple bags filled with about £25,000 each in used Irish punts. There was so much money, they ended up leaving some behind in the rush to escape. Gardy believe Hutch's gang got away with more than 1.3 million Irish punts that day, an absolutely massive sum at the time. Despite their best efforts, they weren't able to charge Hutch with the crime. Instead, a review of security shortly afterwards resulted in the provision of armed guard escorts for all Cash in Ireland transit vans carrying more than one million in the greater Dublin area. The brazen heist catapulted Hutch to the very top of the Garda's watch list, where he joined the likes of Martin the General Cahill and John Gilligan. His reputation as someone not to be messed with was also growing within the confines of the criminal underworld. It's suspected that he was involved in the murder of 47-year-old scrap dealer Mel Cox, who was shot three times in the head while gardening at his home in Blanchardstown, North Dublin, in late June 1987. It's since been reported that 10 days earlier, Cox and Jerry Hutch had a massive fight in a pub in Summerhill where Hutch's jaw was broken. He has publicly denied ever meeting Mel Cox. Regardless of the truth, the rumour persisted and the monk's notoriety within his own community exploded. And he was only 24 years of age. For the next eight years, Hutch kept a relatively low profile. He married Patricia and they had five children together. Very little has ever been revealed publicly about his family. In fact, Hutch has made it clear that he considers anything reported about any of them as a gross invasion of his privacy. What we do know is that they were raised in a nice house in Clontarf and went to private schools, some of them on Dublin's south side and none appeared to have followed their father's footsteps into a life of crime. In fact, several of them hold down professional jobs. 
There was at least one glitzy wedding when his eldest daughter was married at their local church in May 2006, where she was driven to the ceremony in a silver Rolls Royce and the reception was held in nearby Clontarf Castle Hotel. Through these years, Hutch also turned his attention to buying up a vast swathe of property around Dublin, apartment blocks, houses and business premises. He built up an impressive portfolio and for decades has insisted it's how he made his millions. But Gardy believed he was also still heavily invested in crime and in 1995 he was suspected of pulling off one of the biggest heists this country has ever seen. The Brinks Allied robbery in Clon Shock, not too far from Dublin Airport. Months were spent planning the raid on the cash-holding depot at a converted warehouse in an industrial estate. And although the Gardaí suspected Hutch and his cohorts were on the cusp of another huge hold-up, they were no match for the inside information that the gang had been able to gather. In late January 1995, after being alerted that a cash drop-off was being made at the depot, the gang had made their way there in two stolen jeeps. Preparations for this crime had been meticulous. Perimeter fences were cut and weakened, allowing them to plough straight through. A makeshift bridge had even been built over the shallow ring of a gully that surrounded the property. They powered right through to the rear door of the warehouse and then rammed the shutter of a loading bay. Armed with handguns and an AK-47, they fired shots into the air to warn off the security staff and then grabbed the bags of cash. Within a matter of minutes, they were back in a jeep and escaped the way they had come. They'd stolen £2.8 million in cash, yet another record amount. £2.8 million in cash was driven away across the backfields and never recovered. Once again, the prime suspect was Gerard Hutch. Although the Gardaí were certain of who was behind the robbery, they could never find any forensic evidence to link any of their suspects to it. And no one was willing to give them any information that might have been useful. It's thought most of the money was later laundered through a variety of construction projects at the beginning of Ireland's building boom. And while Jerry Hutch, who has always furiously denied he'd anything to do with the heist and was never prosecuted, he did lose his freedom of sorts. From now on, he was top of the Garda's wanted list and the media and public were fascinated by this Dublin man's incredible nerve. He continued to shrug off any claims that he was a major gangland figure, accusing the press, in particular the Sunday world, of being obsessed with him for reasons he couldn't fathom. I'm beginning to believe I'd done it myself from reading it in the paper. When you read these things every week after week, there must be no smoke without fire. It looks that way, it sounds that way. If it backs, it's a dog. He hated the attention, but after being linked so strongly to Ireland's most profitable hold-ups, there was little chance of him shaking off either the guards or the journalists. He never hid from public view. He was often spotted out walking down the Bull Wall near his home in Clontarf, and he was heavily involved in the community he grew up in and where many of his extended family still lived. He worked hard at building up this sort of Robin Hood-style persona, becoming someone who the community could go to for help, either financial or sorting out disputes, a fixer who no one dared cross. 
In 1998, as a way to contribute something positive to the area, he set up the Corinthians Boxing Club in Summerhill. He bought the building, gave the club a freehold lease for 99 years and acted as the treasurer for a while. A huge number of local youngsters have trained there under dedicated coaches like Paddy Corcoran over the years, offering them an alternative pastime to petty crime. Former members include Olympic champion Katie Harrington, who was raised on nearby Portland Row. Oscar winner Jim Sheridan donated them a boxing ring after wrapping up his film, The Boxer. But it was always Jerry Hutch who helped keep them afloat. Since he fled Dublin in the wake of the Regency shooting, the club has struggled to survive. Finding their connection to the monk has closed a lot of doors when it comes to trying to raise support. Nonetheless, Hutch's input into the area has always been appreciated by the locals, earning him both loyalty and respect. In 1997, a year after the Criminal Assets Bureau was set up, and after a lengthy investigation into his affairs, he was slapped with a 1.5 million euro tax liability bill. He finally paid it in 2000, half a million of which he gave to them in cash. In the action that the Criminal Assets Bureau took against Jerry Hutch, this is Felix McKenna, who was the bureau chief at the Criminal Assets Bureau. I give evidence about his um, organisation in the High Court in regards to uh, the revenue applications that we made. And we, we were successful in satisfying the court that he owed this money and he owed his revenue. And in order to make the settlement, there was four properties in Buckingham Street which were sold. And unknown to the rest of us all, <coughs> we got permission to sell them for argument's sake in the month of uh, February, when they were eventually sold, which would might have been the month of uh, September, October of the same year, the Celtic Tiger had kicked in, and the value of the properties had more or less gone up the best part of 100%. The property sold for an enormous amount of money, which none of us contemplated the wood, and Jerry Hutch ended up with uh, half a million of clean money that he had in the bank account, despite the fact he handed also a half a million pounds to the Criminal Assets Bureau, which he carried in in a hold-all bag into a bank in uh, the city centre. And uh, that was converted into a bank draft and handed over to the Criminal Assets Bureau. Was the cash dry? Ordered the cash was dry when it was brought in. The sale of the properties, cab in its own, uh, we were kind of a victim of the Celtic Tiger. He profited. Mm. He was left with a large amount of money shall we say, we could, you could call it at the time clean money. And uh, he was free to go and use that for, for his own purposes, which he did uh, to build a criminal empire. Brazen as ever, he used a settlement agreement that declared him to be fully tax compliant as a way of winning a taxi licence he had been previously refused. He then set up a limo service with a fleet of vehicles that included stretch hummers he imported from the States. He rather humorously called the business Carry Anybody, or Cab for short. And while he might have claimed to hate the limelight, he threw himself into chauffeuring celebrity clients like Mike Tyson and boxing promoter Joe Egan, posing alongside them, wearing a peaked black driver's cap and matching suit. So he kind of created an illusion that this was a, a major criminal who was now going straight, completely straight. And look at me, I'm in here supporting the, the and supporting the box, local boxing club. 
I'm also running a successful uh, limousine service with beautiful cars that will drive you anywhere. However, he came from a world and he was at, at an age and he came up to a life of crime, purely on crime. They have an unusual way of thinking that we're in this for the latter end and for the end. I never believed that he would go, that the underworld would allow him leave and go and live cleanly as the normal citizen. Mm. That's the simplest way of describing it. Because he was so in, in, ingrained, in, ingrained into the underworld itself and it's a murky side of society. Mm. It's possible by this time he had indeed retired from a life of crime, but interest in him did not wane. And rather surprisingly, for a man who insisted the media were to blame for his reputation, he agreed to do an interview with RTE's primetime. It was an extraordinary performance where he claimed to have done his last criminal act at the age of 20, for which he served two years in jail. And the only thing he was guilty of in the intervening years was being ignorant of tax laws, which led to the cab settlement. He also said he got his start in the property business because of a lump sum of money he received from a compensation claim. And he again blamed the Sunday world for creating this myth that he was a major crime lord. If the Sunday world particularly... If they're writing about incidents that's happening for the last 10, 15 years, no matter who is shot in Dublin or who does a robbery or who is doing drugs, they throw my photograph in right beside them all the time. They make it out that uh, Jerry Hutch, the, the boss of crime, and if they put me in with a photograph with people who were shot and they're saying I'm the boss of crime, it makes me look like that I'm the leader of this pack and all that type of stuff, which is totally untrue. Perhaps the biggest insight into the real Jerry Hutch came from retired detective inspector Brian Sherry, who investigated the Clonshock robbery. He would talk the hind legs off you about anything else that you wanted to talk about, but ask him anything in relation to the robbery. He knew nothing, and on the advice of a solicitor, he had nothing to say. There was another revealing moment at the very end. After yet again insisting he was merely an innocent businessman, he shared how he too had been a victim of crime. My house has been broken into twice, he declared. The interviewer asked him what had been stolen. With just a hint of a smile, Butch replied, I called the ambulance for them. There have been no more interviews since. And as new gangs, Mr. Biggs and drug wars sprung up around the country over the next decade or so, Hutch took the opportunity to recede into the background and start settling into proper retirement. And it almost happened for him. He was on the cusp of being one of the few crime lords to make it out fully intact. But in 2016, his time in the sun was rudely interrupted and he was forced to return to the world he thought he'd left behind for good. The Monk is a four-part crime world long read produced by Ian Mullaney and read by me, Nicola Talent. This episode uses archive material from RTE. Crime World is a podcast from sundayworld.com.
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.